right. Good morning to you guys. It's great to be with you today. It is a joy for me to be on this stage with you this morning, Moberly Baptist Church. And I know that's what every guest preacher says. It's in the contract we have to sign that we have to say that to you guys. But I really mean it, truly. Um, some of you guys may remember that I grew up here at Moberly. Obviously, most of you, if you've attended for any length of time, have gotten to know my dad and my mom to some degree. And so I just want to say thanks first to you guys. I want to say thank you to Dr. Dykes. I know he's not with us here this morning, but to give me the opportunity to preach to you all, to address you, and to bring God's word to you is a, is a great honor and responsibility and one that I hope to do well with today. As you heard my dad say, my name is Philip. Um, my wife and I live in Anchorage, Alaska. When we got on the airplane to fly here a week ago, it was about 10 degrees below zero. So I know you guys are chilly, but I almost wore shorts today. It feels good to be with you. <laughs> Uh, and get a little bit of sunshine. Um, I want to quickly catch you up a little bit. Some of you guys are familiar with True North. True North was planted in 2010 at a library in Midtown Anchorage. And by God's grace, we still exist. Here we are 11 years later. Uh, we've grown. We still have a handful of folks that were around back in 2010. And so on behalf of my church, I also bring a greeting to you and a, and a great thanks. Most of our people don't know your names, but they've heard of Moberly. And they know the legacy of your giving, your faithfulness, and many of you even traveling in the early days of the life of our church to help us reach the community and spread the good news of the gospel. Um, a more recent update that I'm very excited to share with you is in our 11 years of existing as a church, we've never had a permanent location. We met in the library, we then moved to a middle school, and about 10 days ago, our congregation voted, because we're Southern Baptists, we have to vote, but we voted to receive a merger offer from a dying church in town, a church that has about 45,000 square feet of unused space and has dwindled down to about 20 members. Um, to give you some perspective, the median age at True North is about 35 years old. We're mostly young families. We run about 250, and 60 of those are children, fifth grade and younger. So we're loud and we're messy, but I like to think that we're a lot of fun as well. And this other church that's offered to merge with us, their uh, average age is about 80 years old. Um, their youngest deacon, the only active deacon that they have, is a gentleman named Russ, and he is 83. Uh, and so you can sense that there's a little bit of a gap there that we've needed God's spirit to bridge for us, but he's done that work. And so we voted to receive their membership into our church. We're keeping the church name, the leadership, all of those things, and we'll be transitioning across the first six months in 2022 into our new location. For the very first time in 11 years, we'll have a home in Anchorage. We'll be permanent. Yes, you can praise the Lord for that. That's a fulfillment in many ways of the vision that a lot of you had over 10 years ago and your willingness to participate. I hope I can encourage that. For those of you who weren't here then, that you can uh, understand and maybe see down the road a little ways that the investments that you're making today in God's mission and in the life of this church will bear fruit. God does follow through on his commitments. And if I can make a plug just for a minute, uh, one of the things that our space needs is some renovations. We need some help bringing a building that looks very 1968, though some of you might have loved those days. They are behind us. We need help bringing that space up to speed into 2022. And so there will be a team that's uh, starting to kind of work together and communicate with the Missions Development Committee here at Moberly that will be coming up this summer. Uh, we'll be hosting you guys for probably between a week and 10 days. And if that uh, kind of grabs your attention, if you are interested in that, um, I'll be down front today when we're done this morning in God's word. You can grab me. You're certainly welcome to reach out to my dad or any member of that committee. And we'll get your information and make sure we keep you in the loop as those plans sort of firm up. Um, and then just if I can ask one more thing before we come to God's word, this is just a favor to me. 12 years ago, in August of 2009, 
I stood on this stage. It was a little bit different then. There was quite a bit more red carpet in the room than there is now. Some of you guys remember those days. But you licensed me into ministry as an 18-year-old. I think you guys were totally crazy to do that. But you did it. Uh, and thankfully, God's kept me on that track. And I have the honor of bringing God's word to you today. But if you would just do me the favor, would you just raise your hand if you were here in 2009 at Moberly in the 8 o'clock service? Yeah, there were a lot of hands. A lot here, too. Thank you, guys. I do bring greetings on behalf of my church. I'm excited to bring God's word to you, but I want to say a personal thank you to you. You guys invested in me. You have supported me and my family, uh, and what I'm going to get to do with you this morning in God's word is a product even of your own faithfulness. So with that said, let's come now to God's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's the version I typically preach from in Alaska. Um, Feel free to, to join along in whatever translation you have if you would stand with me now in honor of God's word. We'll begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew 20, and we'll read through verse 16. Jesus is speaking, and these are his words. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, or a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And then going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said back to him, because no one has hired us. And he said, then go into the vineyard as well. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, a full day's wage. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, saying, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. You may be seated. Thank you. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we are in a series on the parables, stories that Jesus told that teach principles. Although Dr. Dykes is not here today, he asked me to continue in that same line of thinking, that same vein. And so the story that we just read is a parable. It's a story that Jesus told. And like all of the parables, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Jesus speaks this parable in response to a prevailing idea or a question that the people around him have been asking. And so if I can give you just a little bit of context today, we can look back into Matthew 19. I won't read it to you just for the sake of time, but if I can catch you up, towards the end of Matthew 19... Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and this man approaches Jesus. And this guy is kind of like uh, the idea of a model citizen in his day and age. Not only is he a man who seems to be uh, relatively sinless externally, but he's also successful. He has plenty of money. He has a reputation for being the kind of guy that you look up to. And when he approaches Jesus, there's this moment where Jesus gives him a choice. And the disciples are all there. They're standing around watching this happen. Jesus offers this man the opportunity to either come into God's kingdom or to walk away and to keep the kingdom that the man had built for himself. You probably know the story. The man walked away. 
The Bible says that in his heart, he was filled with sorrow. He was sorry, that he was grieved. He felt this heavy sense of loss. But ultimately, even that grief was not enough to move him to repentance, to a place where he would surrender and follow Jesus. And so in response to this encounter, Jesus' disciples turn to him and they ask this question. They say, who can be saved? What they're saying is if this man who has everything figured out, he's got money, he's successful, he checks all the boxes that the world uses for success, if he can't get in, if he will walk away from you, Jesus, who gets in? Well, Jesus, as he often does, takes the question they're asking and he reframes it for them. And he says, if the question you're asking is who can make their own way into the good life in God's kingdom, well, the answer to that question is no one can. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus uses the word impossible to communicate the absolute zero of the odds of anybody making it into God's plan on their own. But he continues, he says, however, if the question you're asking when you say who can be saved is who can God bring into the good life in his kingdom, well, the answer to that is anybody. Everybody receives an invitation. Everybody can be brought in by God's grace and mercy. And then to put a bow on things, Jesus ends Matthew 19 the same way that he ended the parable that we just read together. He says, so many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now between that verse, the end of Matthew 19 and the beginning of Matthew 20 where we just read, there's sort of this implied confusion among the disciples We're toward the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 20. We're close to the end of Jesus' ministry. And yet, even after almost three years of walking with Jesus, his disciples still can't really figure out what he's talking about here. Still feels like he's speaking in riddles a little bit. And so Jesus decides to tell them a story. That's the background of this parable. And as we read through it, as we kind of try to chew on some of what Jesus is discussing and what he has for us, I think you'll see two principles emerge this morning. Jesus' objective is that those principles would take root in our heart and then we would respond to those truths. So Jesus speaks into that confusion that his disciples are experiencing and the first principle rises to the surface. So if you have a worship guide this morning, you'll see on the back page that there's a couple of places for you to fill in the blanks. Here's our first big concept that we'll draw out of the first nine verses of this chapter. That to those who are unfulfilled, Jesus offers hope. To those who are unfulfilled, Jesus offers hope hope. Taking a look at Jesus' story, there are two categories of people interacting. You have the master who really holds all the power, who has the authority to extend an invitation into the lives of these workers to welcome them into the work that he's doing, into the vineyard that he owns. And then directly across from him, you have the workers. And the workers arrive in waves. Hopefully you noticed that. In the ESV, it uses the old school language of the first hour and the third hour and the 11th hour. But if you're reading in the CSB, which I think is what most of you use, it sort of updates that for you. It tells you that we're dealing with 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. So it would help you to have some context here that the workday for the kinds of people that Jesus was interacting with at the time that he taught in Matthew 20, it was a 12-hour workday. Most people who worked would get up in the morning. Typically, they were predominantly men who were trained for a handful of specific jobs. And they would make their way to a marketplace. Now, you and I hear marketplace and we sort of think farmer's market, right? We think stalls and people buying and selling and trading. A better way to interpret that would be sort of a plaza or a town square. Imagine the center of the city. This is a world, and you're going to have to just imagine this with me, especially if you're a millennial like I am, a world without cell phones, a world without email. There's no Facebook group you can get into where you're going to get a notification about where the work is today. You get up in the morning, you get dressed, and then you go and you stand if you're a worker. And you just wait. 
And that's really all the details that we have about these workers. We don't get their names. We don't know if they have a family. We're not sure if they have a good education or not. And I think from Jesus' perspective, that's all we really need to know. Maybe that seems vague to you or a little bit impersonal. I think you actually know men like this, men who are defined by their work. Having grown up in East Texas, many of the fathers of my friends fall into this category, men who work the ground with their hands, men who work from the time the sun comes up until it goes down or their bodies give out. I think of men like landscapers or mechanics, roughnecks that work oil rigs in the Gulf, home builders, good East Texas men, rolling out of bed, lacing their boots up, and heading down to the town square with a thermos of black coffee and a sack lunch. And then they get there, and they stand, and they wait. And through the marketplace come different foremen, different heads of work crews, different landowners, and they begin to cry out, a denarius, a day's wage for X job or Y job. In that context, the kinds of things these men would be hired to do would be potentially to move herds of goats and sheep from a pasture that's already been eaten down to the stubble to a new fresh green pasture. Or they might be hired to work a threshing floor. Threshing floor is sort of an ancient concept you and I don't have, but if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, the whole story of the book of Ruth revolves around a threshing floor. It's harvest season, and Boaz and his men are camping out overnight at this big slab of stone where they spend all day throwing uh, barley and hay into the air so that the chaff will blow away and the grain will fall back down. Some of the men will be hired to do that work. Or, like the laborers in this specific story, some of them are hired to work in a vineyard. Maybe there's wines, there's, excuse me, grapes that are going to sour soon. They need to be pressed before they go bad. Or perhaps it's harvest season and the grapes need to be gathered in before they rot on the vine. These are the kinds of jobs that these workers are hired to do. The first group in our story are hired immediately. As the day breaks, they're there, they're ready to go, responsible, they're dressed for work, they're wide awake. And as soon as the, the foreman comes into town and asks for laborers, they jump right on it. They're like, yes, we know vineyard work, we're in, we'll work. He agrees a day's wage with them, and off they go. But beginning in verse 3, there's some subtlety here that I don't want you to miss. Things are a little bit different. The circumstances seem to have changed. All of the best workers, the A-team, if you will, they were hired out in verses 1 and 2. Now, in verse 3, we arrive with the B-team. And then the next wave might be the C team and the D team and on down through the alphabet until we run out of either workers or letters, you pick. But for these people who have to wait, these groups of workers who are not immediately hired, they remain unfulfilled as long as they stand in the marketplace. They don't leave, they don't go and do another work, they wait where they've been told to stay. They know that if they stay long enough, maybe they'll find work. But for hours and hours, without any kind of news feed to scroll, they just stand there. And they wait. And the whole time that they're waiting, they're unfulfilled. They're unable to do the one thing in the world that they got out of bed to do that day, the thing that you could argue is the purpose of their life, and that's the workers. And then opposed to them is the master. And the master's role and responsibility in the story is to invite the workers in and to give them work to do. The master is the one who ultimately decides whether those workers who are standing and waiting will be fulfilled or not. Without the master the workers will have no work to do. Now, if you'll look back at verse 6, and I hope you have a copy of God's Word, feel free to use your phone or a tablet if that's all you have with you today. I want you to notice that there's a little bit of conversation that happens when the last group of workers are hired. These people are hired, if, if it's a 12-hour workday, they're hired at 5 p.m., and they're going to clock out at 6, one hour later. Or if it's a 9-to-5 workday, you can imagine that they were hired at 4 p.m., one hour before the whistle blows, everybody punches out and heads home. 
Bible tells us, Jesus says in verse 6, about the 11th hour Jesus went out and he found others standing and he said to them, here's the question, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. We cannot hire ourselves, master. We can't put ourselves to work. We can't ultimately fulfill our own purpose. We need someone to extend that invitation to us. So just ask yourself, if you're a worker, this is all you do is work, and you get up and you get dressed and you go down to the marketplace and you end up spending most of the day until one hour from quitting time just leaned against a wall watching group after group of other people get hired and taken out to the vineyard to get to do the work that you wish you were participating in. Don't you think something is maybe wrong Is there a little more going on here than meets the eye when you and I read this at face value? I think so. It's not like there's not enough work to go around. Five times, this head guy, this master of the household, comes out and hires more people. I mean, if you and I were planning out a building or a job site, and maybe we're pouring a concrete slab, and I have to go get more help five times, you would think I probably don't know what I'm doing, right? The job was a little bigger than I planned for. Maybe it's harvest season, we don't know, but something's going on and it's all hands on deck and yet there is a group of workers who obviously consider themselves to be qualified or they wouldn't be standing in the marketplace waiting for a job offer and they never get picked until the very, very end. So what gives? Are they sick? Are some of them old? Maybe their bodies are too frail and they're perceived as being unable or unwelcome. Maybe they've earned a reputation for being lazy or maybe the issue is actually moral for them. Maybe they stole something on their last job. They have a reputation for showing up for a full day's wage and only doing a half day's work. We don't know for sure, but we know this. They have likely failed on some level previously because they are nobody's first choice. They don't get picked first. And as workers without a purpose, they stand around unfulfilled. And not only are they unfulfilled, because they are unfulfilled, they are hopeless. They have a problem that they can't solve on their own. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. When a person goes through a season of life that's exhausting or depressing or fills them with anxiety or or brings up some kind of fear that they have to face over and over again, rarely do we get knocked down and immediately jump back up on our feet, right? We're not Disney princesses. We're human beings. And when we get knocked down, we tend to stay down and we tend to begin to tell ourselves, I guess I'm just going to live my life down here now. And that cycle of depression, that cycle of anxiety, that cycle of wanting and hoping for something that we can't reach out and take for ourselves, it begins to change the way that we see ourselves. These workers are hopeless because their suspicions about themselves are being proven right. They suspect that maybe they aren't the best and now they're being shown that they're not the best because they're not being invited in to do work. They're not just outliers in their culture, they're rejects. They don't just not fit. They've been demonstrated to that they they ought not be around. They ought not be a part. They shouldn't expect other people to reach out or take care of them. Now, I think it's meaningful. I don't want you to miss this. I think it's meaningful that the master doesn't negotiate pay with this last group. Maybe you picked up on that. I hope you did. The only group that, that doesn't get told you'll be paid at the end of the day. The first four groups were told they would either be paid a day's wage or that they would make something that they would consider to be fair for the amount of work that they worked. But the last group is willing to work without any discussion of pay. And this just further reinforces to me that they see themselves the way that everybody else sees them. Why would you take a job? Why would you be willing to sign up for something one hour from quitting time without even asking a question? Being like, should should I be filling a W-9 out at some point? Are we getting paid in cash? What's going on here? There's no discussion about that. 
I think it's because this last group of workers understands that the work that they're doing is maybe somehow an investment in their future. It's a chance to boost their resume or to prove their reputation wrong. Maybe they have been dishonest or maybe they do look sick and this is their chance to prove to one employer that they're good enough that maybe they'll be hired tomorrow. But you can't forget as we dig down into the details of this story that Jesus is not really telling us a story about employment. This is not a parable about how to run a Christian business. Jesus opened this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. This parable is still an answer to the question, who can be saved? So as we watch and interact with this last group of workers, don't misunderstand it and distance yourself from their experience by saying, well, I'm a hard worker and my body's in good shape and this doesn't have anything to do with me. The spiritual principle, the application of this is that there is room in the kingdom of God for people who have been unable to fulfill themselves. That's what I mean when I say unfulfilled. And here's the great hope. For many of us, we know exactly how this group feels. Right? Even if we're Christians, even if we're already technically inside God's kingdom, we may feel that we're too old to create meaningful change. Maybe you live with some kind of health disorder where your health is so inconsistent that you don't think you can really help anybody else. Or worse, if I can be very blunt with you, Many of us, though we might never tell anybody at church about this, we've been so beaten down by failed marriages and rebellious children and our own cycles of addiction that we've just given up inside. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know you're here in the room right now. I'm not trying to attack you. We're still willing to come around the church occasionally, but here's the litmus test. Some of us have stopped expecting anything to happen when we get here. We don't feel that we can afford to have that hope anymore. This is what happens when you go unfulfilled long enough. You think this last group of workers, every time a new foreman walks by, are they eager and excited? Do they tuck their shirts in and brush their clothes off and stand up straight? No, I think four or five rounds of this, and they're just kicked back against the wall. And they're like, I'm here if you need me. You can see me, I can see you. You know what you get. You get what you pay for. And for some of us, this has become our spiritual posture, even in the church. We'll show up, we'll do what other people expect us to do, but the faith that we had at the beginning, the thing that brought us into this room, into this church, it may have dwindled. It may have started to go out. But like the master in the story, Jesus comes to us in our lack of fulfillment, and he asks us the same question that the master asked the last group of workers. He says to you and I, why do you stand here idle all day? It's a good question. And if we're honest, we might respond like this. We might say, because nobody wants this mess, Jesus. Not really. I know there's work to do, but what am I supposed to do about it? It's too late for me. I'm not young anymore. I'm not energetic like I used to be. I'm not as gifted as other people. And so I'll just wait here, all right? I'm not going to quit showing up to the marketplace, but I don't have any expectations that you're going to do anything with me anymore. When the master in Jesus' story meets those who are unfulfilled to the point that they've become apathetic, what does he do? He invites them in. He doesn't reaffirm their apathy. He doesn't reaffirm their hopelessness. He gives them meaning. He gives them purpose. And then he justifies them because he pays them the same wage as the hardest workers in the vineyard. They go from unfulfilled, stuck in the consequences of the lives that they've lived, whether they're old or sick or dishonest, and now they become fulfilled. Now they've been honored by this master, by his choice to extend mercy to them, restored to equal footing with the hardest workers on the team. Jesus taught this parable as a demonstration of his grace and his mercy. And if you're here today and you identify with that last group of workers, the gospel truth for you, the principle in this parable, is that Jesus offers you something you can have hope in. 
the end of your story doesn't have to be the end of your story. It might be the point you needed to arrive at for Jesus to extend a hand that you're willing to take. If it had been 20 or 30 years ago, maybe you'd be the rich young man who walks up to Jesus and immediately walks away because you still have it going on. But maybe today you've come close enough to the end of your rope that you're willing to take God seriously. Let's land the plane here with our second principle. I'm going to read the last few verses of this again just to remind you of what's going on, beginning in verse 10. Now, when those hired first came to receive their wage, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received only a denarius, one day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, this last group worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But the master replied to one of them, saying, friend, I imagine the master putting his hand on the guy's shoulder, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Have I not kept my word to you? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then Jesus ends the parable and turns back to his disciples and says, So, in this way, the last will be first and the first last. Here's your second principle today. To those who are self-righteous, Jesus is humiliating. The story could have ended in verse 9, right? Now that you've seen the second principle, maybe you wish that it would have. <laughs> but this is a story about people, so it has to go bad at some point, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's a fairy tale. This is why Jesus' stories stick when we hear them, because they're about us, real human people with real human issues. The first group of workers witnessed the master generously giving a wage to those who had done the least work, and they didn't rejoice at his mercy. They responded with wickedness. With malice, with anger, they were jealous. They somehow perceived a personal slight by the master extending grace and mercy to someone else. Now, if that seems far-fetched to you, that's probably a good thing. But it's likely for many of us that there is some category of person on the face of the earth that if God were to draw them to himself and save them, we might have a few questions for God. You sure, God? You know what they used to say? You know what they used to do? You understand the way that they've lived their life? They don't know enough yet. They haven't been around here enough yet. We don't know them well enough yet. Our hackles begin to go up. To use a good East Texas phrase, we bow up a little bit, right? When God invites somebody in and we're not quite sure about that yet. That's the experience of these workers. Like many modern Christians, I believe that they were more focused on the faults of other people than they were the mercy of God. A very common attitude in 2021. They were loyal to the idea of what was fair and deeply offended when their master showed mercy to their co-workers. As soon as he shows kindness to a worker whom the first group perceives as somehow less than them, they're humiliated. They even say, how dare you? You would pay them the same? Didn't we work in the heat of the day? Didn't we do the hardest part of the work this morning? And yet you're going to treat them like they're equal to us? Who do you think you are, Jesus? That's, frankly, the conversation that's happening. I know the master's unnamed in the story, but that's who we're dealing with. God plays the part of the master in the story. They're self-righteous, and so when they encounter this kind of grace, it's humiliating to them. Their response to mercy reveals their hearts, church. Their righteousness, their work ethic, their identity, it was based on what they thought of themselves, not who God said they were. So we ought to ask ourselves a question today, especially this close to Christmas, at a time when there may be people joining us for a gathering like this who don't fit our categories and don't fit our molds. 
Where do we source our righteousness? Where do we get our sense of right and wrong? Is it ourselves? Is it your accomplishments? Is it the standing or the influence that you have in this local church? Or do you derive your identity from the God who saved you and therefore are you able to celebrate when God saves anybody from anywhere? Remember again the question that Jesus' disciples asked him before he told this story. They said, who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? If you're asking me who can work their way into God's kingdom, the answer is nobody. For some of us, we are expecting a pretty hefty paycheck from God because we've been grinding it out in his kingdom, but we've been doing it for ourselves. Building our own idols shaped like our own selves, they just happen to be under the roof that bears God's name. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. If you're not sure, if maybe you are a person who assumes you're in the kingdom of heaven, but you might not actually be in because of your heart posture, here's a litmus test. Spend some time with the kinds of people that Jesus hung out with. And then when you watch God save those people, check your heart and see if you can celebrate it or if you're a little bit disappointed that God would let somebody like that into his kingdom. What happens inside of us when Jesus saves somebody who's hurt us? That's a question we ought to ask. Can we celebrate that? Can we forgive a person that God forgives? I'm not saying to continue to give a person access to your life who's repeatedly hurt you over and over again, but can you celebrate and find joy in their salvation or not? What about a person who has a reputation in this community, who's been around Longview for a long time, who's had a lot to say about what's wrong with the church and religion? What if they show up and they repent and they give their life to Jesus? What will win out in your heart, your skepticism, your world-trained senses of I know better and time will tell, or can you honestly and rightly celebrate that another sheep has come home? That's the question Jesus is asking. His disciples are in shock. They see this man walk away who fits the mold of what they would expect a great person in God's kingdom to look like. And Jesus is not only challenging that, he's saying, but what, about, what if one of these least of these did come in? Would you even notice if a poor old woman instead of a rich young man did start following us? Would it even register on your radar? Or have you fine-tuned your senses? Have you been so discipled by the world that your categories for success inside the kingdom of God are identical to the ones the world uses outside of God's kingdom? The master's choice to pay all of the workers the same was an act of mercy, not injustice. And if the master in this story represents God, our Father, and God's mercy for us, then we have a lesson to learn, even if we don't consider ourselves part of the category of worse people, the last group to be hired. When it comes to who is in or out of God's kingdom, Jesus explains that he gives his mercy away both to people who've spent their whole lives trying to get in and those who've never thought twice about God before the moment that they're saved. When Jesus saves the worst people, he's not devaluing our salvation, church. He's communicating to you and I that on our absolute worst day, regardless of what category we think we fall into, there's still room for us in God's kingdom. That's the value of the Christian witness that we bear when we see a person who we might consider off the deep end finally drawn into God's household. If they on their worst day can get in, then we on our best or worst day can get in. And it reminds us the principle that Jesus is teaching his disciples in this parable that it is God's mercy and God's grace that opens the gates of salvation to any who would come. It's not our allegiances. It's not our faithfulness. It's not our obedience. Those things are good and right, but they come after we've been invited into the vineyard. The moment of mercy is when the master extends that invitation. So don't let it be an insult to you when God saves the people around you who maybe you've already given up on. 
try, especially as we come weeks away from the arrival of Jesus' birth, right? December the 25th, a day that we as Christians especially celebrate, try to see that as the beginning of salvation and mercy and life being made available to all. Let's learn that from Jesus. Let's watch him seek and save. Let's never give up on anybody in prayer, in our commitment to them. And then let's celebrate when we watch him go much further than we would be willing to, because he will. He'll show how supremely valuable his love must be if it can never be earned and has to be given away. Too valuable to ever be purchased. Jesus finished the story the same way he started it. He told his disciples, the last will be first and the first will be last. There will be hope for the unfulfilled. That's what it means for the last to be first. And there will be humiliation for the self-righteous. That's what it means for the first to be last. But they will witness Jesus welcome in the marginalized, the overlooked, and the rejected. That's the hope we have. The kingdom of heaven is a place like that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word and the mercy that it is to be challenged with a right idea of what is right and wrong, Father. I myself am a product of a faithful local church. I've worked in local churches for years and years, and I feel almost constantly the drag and the drift and the magnetism to begin to place emphasis on my own works, my own righteousness, my own deeds. I pray two things for this congregation this morning, God. One, for those who feel themselves standing in the marketplace, never chosen, and beginning to grow apathetic and weary of waiting, that you would give them hope today. That viscerally, God, in a very real way, you would make your presence known and you would remind them of the role that they play in your kingdom or invite them in for the first time. And then two, God, for those of us who may have drifted into gatekeeping a little bit, who may have become an obstacle, would you get us out of the way for the sake of the first group of people? May none of us ever deny a person whom you have drawn to yourself. We love you, Father. We receive your word with mercy and grace this morning. We trust that you'll work in our lives. Amen.